Hello and welcome to a Thriving Future podcast, where we meet the pioneering organizations and communities leading the way towards a more thriving future for us all. My name is Hannah Temple, and today I am speaking with multi-award-winning environmental entrepreneur Cressy Wesley. After first meeting the London Fire Brigade in 2005, Cressy launched Elvis and Cressy alongside her partner, which rescues and transforms decommissioned fire hose into innovative lifestyle products and returns 50% of profits to the firefighters' charity. The company now collects 12 different waste streams and has several charitable partnerships and collaborations across industries. In 2021, Elvis and Cressy also took on a farm in order to establish a regenerative agriculture project generate their own renewables, and implement a host of environmental initiatives. In this discussion, we go deep into the really human, personal side of what is needed to really be regenerative. Cressy generously shares how her own childhood and role models helped her to generate really deep, solid values, which you'll hear have been the foundation for all of her work and life. Her perspective on going down the regenerative path is unapologetic, frank and straightforward. And I think this is because there is a real deep truth to her words that lies at the heart of what it means to be regenerative. Together, we have a roller coaster of a conversation covering shareholders and growth and money, as well as Dolly Parton, um, great dates and the best sewage system in the world, quote unquote. There is annoyingly a bit of background noise for a couple of minutes as Cressy speaks around 15, 18 minutes in and again towards the end, which couldn't be removed. But I really encourage you to stick with it regardless, because the messages she has to deliver are vital. Let's get started. Okay, hello, Cressy. Welcome to A Thriving Future. Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. Really looking forward to it. It would be great if we could start by just telling us a little bit about where you are physically in the world right now, because we're kind of almost neighbours, aren't we? Yes, we are. I'm I'm up the hill from you, I think. Um, <laughs> I live in North Kent in the North Downs, which is an amazing geological feature of chalk <laughs> that often explodes right through the surface of there, um, which is, you know, the North Kent is just the, the, the piece of Kent which sits alongside the Thames as it goes back out into the sea. And uh, is I'm about seven minutes outside of Faversham, which is where you are. Yeah, yeah, very close. Um, so it's great that we could make this additional connection today. Um, could we start by just introducing us to Elvis and Cressy? Tell us a little bit about it. What do you do? A little bit of its history. Give us a bit of a picture. Elvis and Cressy is a business that essentially does three things. We rescue materials that would otherwise go to landfill. We transform them into beautiful things. And then we donate 50% of the profits to charity. So the, the material we're most known for is decommissioned fire hoses. That's where we started. In 2005, um, we found our first fire hose, fell immediately in love with it, and launched a project to save it without really knowing 
what we would do with it, how we would do it, or what would happen. <laughs> we just didn't want it to go to landfill anymore. And with a lot of research um, to understand the material itself, going to Yorkshire where it was made, trying to get to grips with its heating point, its melting point, its possibilities, we decided that the best industry really to attack with our decommissioned fire hose was going to be luxury. So we started making it into first belts. And then after we mastered belts, we started looking at other things. And then we donate 50% quite naturally to the firefighters charity. So we've been doing that since 2005. And now we rescue 10 to 15 other materials. And it's always with the same MO, you know, rescue, transform, donate. Hmm. And you... I think I understand that part of the reason why you moved to the amazing site that you're on now, and I must just add that I have had the, the pleasure and privilege of visiting the Elvis and Cressy headquarters, and it's an amazing place. I would really recommend anyone who gets the chance to find himself in this corner of the world that you that you go and have a look around. But part of the reason you moved there was also because you started a, another sort of aspect to your work. Is that right? Yes. And, and again, we were, you know, people talk about being led by your nose or by your stomach. <laughs> we were led here really by our values. The, the company was doing fine where it was, you know, we were in a lovely building and we really enjoyed the space. It was a building that we had rescued and transformed. We bought it in 2013 and it was great. And we thought we'd never, ever, ever outgrow it. Um, but then it came to a head, really. We had no more space and we needed to do something. So we started looking at farms. And the reason we started looking at farms is because if we were going to make a move from where we were, we wanted everything to be possible. We wanted to be able to um, produce our own energy. We wanted to be able to store our own energy. We wanted to be able to collect and harvest rainwater. We wanted to be able to build our own sewage system. We wanted to put into practice all of the wonderful environmental dreams we've had over the last 17 years. And that really, that really meant having, having a lot of space. And on a farm, you can do really exciting things because you can mix that with agriculture and it can actually be a business in and of itself. At the same time, we were researching regenerative agriculture and we thought, actually, if the business has a future, a genuine future, the business has to be net regenerative. It has to give more good back into the world than it sucks out. And that means we needed to be in a place where we, we could do all of these wonderful things. When you're on a, a, a limited, I mean, our building before was also a listed building. We weren't allowed double glazing, let alone triple mm. glazing. We certainly wouldn't have been allowed solar panels or any kind of renewable energy. So this was really an opportunity for us to come to a place that had a fairly blank slate. It was a farm that had been um, really cherished, really cherished at one point, but uh, neglected for quite a long period of time. Seven buildings here. All of those buildings needed to be repaired. And there was no septic system there, you know, there, there, there was no workshop. There was a real opportunity for us to create something new. But also, because there's 17 acres of land, we were able to think about what would, what does regenerative agriculture look like? 
and I and I get that that's a big leap for some people. Why do people who make handbags think that they can be farmers? Well, we didn't. You know, we we're not we're not that arrogant. So we studied. We spent the whole period building up to the pandemic and through the pandemic trying to understand what was broken about the food system in the same way that we've been looking at what's broken about the fashion system for so long. And in a lot of ways, it's the same errors. Really long, complicated supply chains, which means that it's difficult to protect people all along the way. Um, really long, complicated supply chains, which means it's really hard to uncover environmental degradation when mm -hmm. and where it's happening. And, and a complete lack of literacy when it comes to how your food is made how your clothes are made. Mm. And, we, we, and we thought if we have this wonderful space, it's just an hour from London and we can teach people how your bags are made and we can also teach them how your food is grown, then maybe we're onto something. But also the opportunity to do a farming project, I think is really close to my heart. My, my grandparents were all farmers in Western Canada. And it's something that I've always wanted to do without really understanding why I wanted to do it. And it was, yeah, three or four years ago where, where I finally understood why I wanted to do it. To be net regenerative for us meant that we had to take charge of an ecosystem that was degraded and that lacked biodiversity and that wasn't healthy and to bring it back into a state of real abundance and resilience and joy and all of those things. So that's the long answer as to why we're here. And it's a really easy thing to show people the second they walk onto the farm and they see the most beautiful sewage system in the world which is what we <laughs> built here <laughs> uh, it's a nature-based wetland system that an incredible man called jay abrams um signed and built for us you know as soon as people come here and they see that they get entirely why we're here because mm -hmm. we don't see sewage as a problem we see it as something that can create a biodiversity hotspot on the farm can mm -hmm. ensure that we're retaining mm -hmm. water in the landscape. And where there's water, there's light. Even in the drought we had this summer, our wetland system still had water running through it because we were still flushing the loos. We were still having showers. We were still, um, we were still washing dishes. So all of the insects and all of the amphibians and everything were just absolutely flocking to that miraculous space, which, yeah. Yeah, which, which, which at its core stayed green. And we are growing willow there and other trees and and just producing a habitat which we will get the privilege of watching unfold and develop over you know the course of the rest of our lives I suppose. Wow I mean you've created a, a literal oasis uh, in, a, in a chalky landscape that yeah as you say gets really 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 dry in summers like the one we just had. Yes. And you've yes. talked and it, about. It had no water yeah there was no water here and we've we've created rainwater harvesting ponds and a wetland system and we're now storing here I don't know plus our rainwater harvesting tank which is 20,000 liters we're probably storing 350,000 liters of water just in the landscape which is pretty amazing that and is we want, amazing we want, we want more we want more of course we do but isn't that fantastic because all of that is water that can then be as you say accessed and used by wildlife but also it's water that's not rushing across the surface and causing flooding taking soil with it it's you're holding and bringing holding life kind of where it is yeah it's feeding 
plants and trees. It's it's growing willow. You know, we we planted probably twelve hundred willow, which are coppicing willow, and 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 I'm going to have to learn how to make baskets. <laughs> yep, <laughs> because, because we're going to have a lot of it. That's going to be a new product range. And 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 interestingly, it fits completely with our mo because the only reason we're going to be able to grow willow at the rate that we can here is because it's being fed by the nutrient-rich wastewater that we produce on site. So it's yeah. rescue, transform, and and donate. You know, it's going to be the exact same model, um, just applied to a different material that's produced in a different way. Yeah, I hear so much in what you're saying. Permaculture is a massive kind of source of inspiration for me and for the work that we do at Tealco. And one of the phrases um, within permaculture that I use a lot is the problem is the solution. That the mm. thing that we think is the is the issue, whether that's waste of some kind uh, or something else, like so often that's actually an answer in itself to to what we're looking for. So often that is the solution sitting there in the problem. And I hear that very much in kind of how you've orientated to the land and the things that you're being that have been produced and the fire hose itself and the in the origins of your of your organization. I want to bring us to this idea of, you know, the name of the podcast is A Thriving Future. And I'm curious about, you know, from your perspective at a big picture level, what would it mean for an organization to really contribute to a thriving future? You've talked about some really important aspects already that it's important that it that it gives more than it than it kind of takes out that it maybe has shorter supply chains or that it kind of op- offers teaching shares its wisdom out into the world you've used this beautiful language of abundance resilience and joy what i wonder if there's anything more you'd like to say about you know that idea of an organization whether it's a business or a charity or a government or whatever an organization that is truly supporting the emergence of a more thriving future, what kind of are the elements of that? Well, well, first there's the vocabulary itself, right? We have historically only looked at business success based on turnover, profit and growth, which is so reductive and, and actually not even interesting because if your growth is based on exploitation or environmental degradation, then I think it should be illegal and I think your business should be forced to shut down. So thrive is a fantastic word because that should be the kind of language we use to describe a successful business. Is your Mm. business thriving? And thrive doesn't mean growth. (laughs) It could mean growth and impact. Mm-hmm. It could mean growth in the emotional well-being of people who uh, benefit from the existence of the business, whether that be through employment, work experience, or you know becoming custodians of its goods or services. Um, it could mean because its its existence is engaging and inspiring and educating. It could mean all of those things and it and it should mean all of those things and much much more that are about joy and hope and resilience and and a future for civilization as opposed to a future for shareholders i guess mm. and that is the kind of business we should all be trying to build one that isn't reliant on destruction for its profitability but one that's reliant on 
on the the health of the health of everything involved. So whether that be the environment, the people who you know make it all happen, and the people who benefit from the fact that it happens. Mm. You know, I, I we had a visit last week of uh, firefighters from across the country, and it was an incredible you know moment for us because we've been planning this visit for a long time. They wanted to come and see the new workshop, which is made of straw bales and runs on solar. And is incredibly almost cathedral-like. I think some of my neighbors thought we were building a church up here. Um, but it was an amazing moment because they are, they are the community that we built this business in the service. Of. Mm. They, they are the reason that vintage fire hose exists. They are the reason why we are protected from fires. And they are the beneficiary, the firefighters charity is the main beneficiary of the work that we do. So to, to have them come and, and really love the space and really love the farm and really understand why we've done all of this was just wonderful. That, the mood and atmosphere that way was incredible. And nobody talked about growth. Nobody talked about turnover. Nobody talked about anything other than how can we all work together to make this a success and how can we all support each other in the issues that we're having you know the firefighters charity that the, the biggest work that they're doing now is around mental health mm. 20 years ago it was around physical rehabilitation and, and they've completely transformed based on the needs of their beneficiaries and that's what a thriving organization should do it should transform based on need not based on you know what can be sold for more profit Mm. And I think that relationship is is really interesting because I think um, between kind of profit and money and growth and this idea of being regenerative. And I think there are some really you know clear tensions there, but it's also, I think, not a complete either or situation in that so many organizations, I think, who are sort of purpose-driven, wanting to be regenerative, can get to a place where they think, oh, we can't even talk about money because that's not why we're here. That's not why we set this up. But you do need a certain amount of finance to be able to keep going. And, you know, mm. I know you mentioned before about, um, you know, the Elvis and Cressy, you reached a stage where actually you were kind of growing beyond the space that you were in and mm. you moved. Could you say a bit more about how those things can sit together how can it be, how can you hold kind of making some money, enough money with being regenerative? How does money and regenerativeness sit together? So, so I've always had absolutely no problem with this. Money to me is a WD-40. It's a, the grease and the wheels. It's not why you do anything. It's a discipline. And as a creative species, I don't, think this is a, ever a tension that people should be as unresolvable. If you're working in an, in an organization that relies on exploitation and degradation, figure out another way. Mm -hmm. And that, that might, might sound like a really blunt and, and maybe even cruel thing to say, but figure it out. This is, this is the kind of thing human beings are great at. You know, we are, we are creative, we are curious, we are problem solving, we are collaborative, we have all these tools, we have all the understanding, 
We know how bad climate change is. We know how bad biodiversity loss is. We can fix it if we decide to fix it, if we mm -hmm. resolve to fix it. So this is, these, are, these aren't unresolvable tensions. Anyone who says that to me, to me I, really, I just think, you go and say that to your six-year-old self. Mm. Try and justify that to your grandmother. It's almost a little bit emotional, but I, I am often thinking if this would make her proud, if I could, if she would understand why we're doing this, then it's the right thing to do. And if I couldn't explain it to her and she wouldn't understand it, then we're making a mistake. And I, I just think we don't often look at business decisions with an emotional lens. And I think that's a complete, uh, I think that's a complete waste of all of, <laughs> of our entire humanity, right? You are an entire person. You have a beating heart. You have an emotional core. So why ignore that? And and oh yeah, when people say, but you sometimes you have to make the tough business decisions. I'm like, <laughs> no, you don't. Mm. No, you don't. No, you don't. The tough business decision is to decide not to make the money that is degrading and exploiting. That is a, and that and is that a tough decision, or is that a liberating decision? Mm. And as soon as you give yourself permission to make those kinds of choices. I don't know. Like I feel incredibly free. I don't feel stuck in anything. And I don't, and I, I know the same is true for Elvis. We don't feel, we don't feel negative about the work that we're doing. We don't feel broken down by it. We don't feel that it's gradually reducing our humanity so that one day when we're shriveled up and old, there'll be nothing left and we'll just be mean and bitter old people. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, and, and that's what, a, that's what taking this, taking this abundant, you know, problem solving mindset allows you to have is just, mm. is just honest to God, joy every day. I met, um, I was with a group of women a few weeks ago and they were all talking about having imposter syndrome and having this internal critic and, and how it was really struggling, helping them, it was creating struggles in their career and in their family life and all these other things. And I was like, oh, I don't have that. I don't have an internal critic. I have a really strong interior monologue, but it's a cheerleader. Mm. And she sounds a lot like Dolly Parton. And it's more <laughs> like, come on, it's more like, come on, get that done. Yeah. I don't know why it has, I don't know why she has a southern accent. I don't know. But <laughs> it's it, but I don't have anything that's stripping that's stripping away you know my confidence or my values. I have let's do this. Let's go. Come on. That's, that's, that's the voice in the back of my mind. And, and yeah, I, I like listening to that voice because it's never really put me on. Yeah. And can I ask you, I mean, you may not know the answer to this, but do you have a sense of where that comes from or whether there are things that you do in your life or have experienced that have, have means that the voice in your head is Dolly Parton and not mm -hmm. some, terrible evil critic how is it that you've got dolly in there cheering for you well it is, i mean it is the you know it is the the influence of, of my grandmother it is the influence of having had oh i just had an amazing childhood incredible family unbelievable community never anything but support people that i grew up with that i'm still friends with now will joke about how 
you know, how even when I was like three or four years old, I was already quite directorial, <laughs> like marshalling <laughs> and like, let's put on a show, let's get this done. Um, I wasn't I, like that at all, she says, glancing sideways. <laughs> no, I was, I was definitely like, they have tapes, they have, they have it on tape. <laughs> They, they like to share these tapes with people. I'm glad it was the time before, you know, digital media, because all of it would be <laughs> online. Um, but I think it comes, I think it comes from really having just an incredible childhood and youth that, that a lot of it was spent in nature and outside and never having any, um, never really having anyone say, you can't do that. That's impossible. Just like, oh, that might be hard, but let's, let's, Think about how we might get that done i remember yeah. actually even even one crazy anecdote like i i really wanted to go into politics i studied politics at university i really thought that was how to change the world at that stage of life and my dad didn't think that was the right place for me and his way of of but his way of supporting me in that was that he contacted everyone he knew to try and like find a politician because we didn't in our family we didn't know any and through a connection of a connection of a connection of a connection of something like that, somebody knew Joe Clark, which is a former prime minister of Canada. So I found myself at, I don't know, the age of 19 or whatever, having a, 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 like a half an hour meeting with Joe Clark. And at the end of that half an hour, he's like, I don't think you should go into politics. Um, he's like, I don't think it's for you. And I was like, yeah, I mean, based on everything he'd said, I, I agreed. So then I had to readjust my thinking. But that ah. was the kind of support. That was the kind of support I had in my family. Was it wasn't like, oh, you shouldn't do that. It's like, well, let's let's find people who can advise you on that because we can't. Mm. Wow. I mean, that, that does just sound yeah. like an incredible, an incredible upbringing. Um, one yeah. that I'm sure many people will be very envious of. Yeah, I was a very. If I was a plant, I was one of these plants that had Mozart playing and spritzes of. <laughs> Ginger water. Tended beautifully. Yeah. Amazing. But I think it does say something really important to the value and and the criticality of how we nurture people in in the world now. And and if we want to see people who are able to and have the confidence and the self-belief and the kind of values to be able to make choices in a way that puts the thriving of the world, um, the thriving of the planet, the thriving of life at the center, that actually those early pieces are really, are really critical. They, they, they are. I actually, I went to a film screening last week. A friend of mine in Australia has put together this incredible um, film on mental health where they've looked at what kinds of, basically the film's called How to Thrive, <laughs> which is wow. really interesting in this conversation. <laughs> and it, and it, and it, offered people these completely basically it offered people tools so that they could see what was positive in their life and they could expand on those things that were positive in, the, in their life instead of focusing on being ill they could focus on the kinds of things they could change about their day-to-day life to make them well mm-hmm. and it, it you know positive psychology is is grow is a growing movement it's certainly um got a lot of uh proponents in Australia and and it was like one of the lead researchers the researchers on this who's the academic behind the film and it was fantastic to watch because I just thought actually these people can't at the beginning of the film I was like these people can't thrive because their 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 mental struggles are so great 
and it, that makes it really difficult for them to then thrive within their community and, 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 and offer something amazing back, even though somehow through their struggles, often they were core members of family parenting, doing all these other things, but just at the expense of their own mental health. Yeah. So it was, so really, I think education needs to be redesigned to teach us how to thrive, to teach us about mental resilience. Yeah. And I think that's really crucial that you say that it can be taught. So although, as you mentioned, you know, having that, that amazing upbringing, that, um, that attentiveness, that support from your family was crucial for your own journey. It's not the case that people who didn't have that, you know, that's it. Uh, of course, no. there are loads and loads of ways, but it is, it is work, right? It's, mm. it is, it requires us to look inward and to do that work to support our own thriving, but it's not, Kind of sacrificial work it's work in our own interests and yeah. as you were speaking earlier as well about how you understand this idea of a of a regenerative organization or an organization that is supporting the emergence of a thriving future i was getting the this quote from robin wall kimmerer who wrote braiding sweetgrass and um gathering moss um all flourishing is mutual is her quote and i think that is just such a powerful phrase to remember the interconnectedness so if we are as you say running an organization that is exploiting the land the soil or exploiting people in supply chains uh, around the world or exploit exploiting consumers or whatever exploiting employees then mm. that will eventually affect us because only when we are all flourishing is there any true flourishing that you can't have yeah. kind of I'm going to flourish at the expense of you because actually it's connected that will come back and affect us in the way that we're seeing all around us now you know the exploitation of others the exploitation of the world is going to affect us all um, mm. and this kind of recognition of interconnectedness is for me so key to this idea of what it means to be a more regenerative organization and force and person in the world. And you can see it so obviously with children. I, I, I remember explaining to a group of school kids what landfill was, because I was like, do you guys know what landfill is? And they were like, no. I was like, so imagine at home, you've made a huge mess and, and instead of dealing with it, you just put it under your bed and you pretend it never happened. And they're like, I would get in so much trouble. <laughs> and I was like, so I was like, so society lifts up the grass and puts it under there and puts, and they they were just incensed by that. Yeah. And I have a, a a niece in New Zealand, and I remember a story my sister was telling me about her that they were learning about um, uh, this like river pollution by certain industries, and she felt it physically herself when she learned. It. She was like, but that hurts me. Mm -hmm. That's hurting mm -hmm. me. She was having a, like a, she had a physical and emotional and immediate response. Like mm -hmm. it was like it, that was the water in her body that was being polluted. And I was like, yeah, how do we turn that, that back on mm -hmm. in, in adults? How wonderful to be reminded that, that, um, that that is in us all at the beginning. That's not something that we have to now teach ourselves how to feel. We've already felt that, but we've been taught to numb it or ignore it or whatever. Um, and actually it's, it's there already. Yeah. That's probably the worst phrase ever is don't take that to heart. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> we <should> take it, <laughs> take it, take it to heart. Yeah. Suffer from it and then fix it. <laughs> mm. 
So you were talking earlier about kind of the creativity and the liberation that you feel in your work and how actually this ambition to be as regenerative as possible has been a freeing experience. I mm. wonder if there's more you could do to tell us about how that's been realized within your work at Elvis and Cressy and on the farm. What kinds of things have you experimented with doing to try to make it as regenerative as possible? So I think there's there's kind of two parts of the answer. Like when I was in my 20s, I was trying to figure out who I was. By the time I was 30, I knew who I was. I was trying to become good at that. I'm in my 40s now, and this is sort of, I, I always say this is my impact. And then when I'm 50, like the, the wheels come off. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like yet, but it's going to be mega. Um, <laughs> but you have all these things that you, that you dream of doing. You think, maybe I'll do that in the future. Maybe I'll do that in the future. And right at the beginning of the pandemic, Elvis and I went for a walk and we were like, all of those things that we wanted to do in the future, we're going to do right, right now. Because there might not be one. So we just have to get it all in. And that, that fast forwarded a lot of things that we probably would have let unfold over a much longer time frame for no real reason mm. other than, other than, you know, it's hard to do that many different things at once when you don't necessarily know what those, what those are. And when you're stepping into new territory, when you start looking at having a renewable energy system, it's still a very complicated landscape. We, we, when you start getting quotes from different suppliers, they're so vastly different for the same request that, that it throws up a lot of confusion. Well, am I making the right decision? This is a big investment. And we were really lucky to actually find um, a, a supplier from within Faversham who probably knows more about renewable energy than anyone else I've ever encountered, who's just an honest and genuine, wonderful, wonderful person. And him and his wife run um, in, in, Invicta Clean Energy, and they're great. Right? So they they were the ones to help us, but what is it? What does it look like? It looks like just doing. So instead of thinking about always what can be put off, it's like what can be put on right now. And one of the things that Elvis's parents say about him, they they joke about it. They're like, "Oh yeah, classic. It's totally classic of him." Why put off to tomorrow what you can do right now? That's that's the way he is as a human being. So it could be it could be three o'clock in the morning, he'd be like, mm, we haven't done this. Well, then we get up and we do it. Wow. It's just 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 the way he's wired. And yeah, it's very funny. It's very funny. Sometimes you're like, well, I'm not sure, but I'm not gonna question it because this is coming from a good place. So we're gonna really do this particular task right now. But I do think it's about having a, having a really strong sense of values and making sure you act according to those and doing it now. Mm. And if you find that if, if you find that there's a, 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 a mistake, that's fine. That's, you know, if something doesn't work, that's fine. Go again. Mm-hmm. Go again right now. It, it doesn't look like. And that, I guess that's why it's liberating, because you're like, oh, this is such a great idea. Let's do it now. You, you get immediate you get immediate gratification from it whether you succeed or fail because you tried it we we have this idea of we've, we're doing lots of R&D on uh, tea sack which is a, a waste material that we rescue and 
I had a, a, a tea, a tea sack is, tea comes into the country in these giant paper sacks and they can't get recycled because it's four layers of paper. The final layer is laminated to foil and polyethylene. So the whole thing gets incinerated at landfill, which is a real shame because four of the layers are just food grade paper and there's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. And, and paper is essentially like a tree is lignose, lignin and cellulose. Those are the two components. Cellulose are the fibers and lignin is the biopolymer that holds it all together. And I thought if we could retree paper, because paper is just the cellulose after stripping away the lignin. So if we can add that lignin back, maybe we can come up with a whole new thing. So we've tried doing that in lots of different ways. We haven't succeeded yet. But we just keep trying. And every time something doesn't work, I'm like, well, that's something I can cross off the list. It's something that I can go, that we tried that, didn't work. This is why. Next. Mm-hmm. And and when I was in, in, in researching a sewage system here, you know, when I was trying to, on my route to finding Jay, I looked at all kinds of different potential systems. And I had problems with all of them. I was like, well, that sort of sounds okay because it doesn't use any energy and it doesn't, but it, you still have to get this dug out you know still rely like a reed bed system is a monoculture i was like none of these sound exactly like what i'm looking for and then when we found jay i was like no that's it and it and if you if you are constantly exploring and able to and and giving yourself the permission to be curious and to explore Mm. then you'll know what then you'll know what good looks like when you see it like like when i first met elvis we um, we only had one date and I moved in with him. That was it. <laughs> like, wow. Left. It must've been a great date. <laughs> it was, it was, he made, he made chili, he invited me over for dinner. He made this really fantastic chili and he had two kinds of ice cream. And I was like, that's it. <laughs> two <laughs> kinds of ice cream. Guys, Everyone listening, chili and ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so decadent. Um, no, but, but if you, if you, so, so we we in our work we get to try things a lot mm. and that is liberating and 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 we get to and we get to try on all of those things that we're trying are in line with our values we're not like ooh, let's try out modern slavery today you know like that's 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 not on the list of activities but and i mean i sort of say that flippantly and it's totally not flippant because there's a huge like there's so many businesses in the economy that rely on modern slavery. They're exactly. experimenting with modern slavery as a part of their supply chain. Mm. And we know that this is something that's failed. We know that this is something that's absolutely horrendous, morally bankrupt and illegal. So get rid of it. Find another way. Use your brain. Use your soul. Mm-hmm. You know, mine, mine your imagination instead of the earth. I, I, yeah, it, we get to, we get to do these things because we've designed a business that allows us to do that. And Elvis is really good at designing the products, but I think what my focus has always been on, I'm going to design a business that allows us and everyone in this, in that works with us to be honest to goodness, human beings and citizens and contributors to a sustainable future and uh, and i don't see why all businesses can't be designed to do that <laughs> they just have to decide exactly well i'd love to hear a bit more about that because i think like as you say the the design of an organization can, can play a massive role in either enabling or discouraging more mm. regenerative choices and decisions 
can you say a bit more about how you've designed Elvis and Cressy? What are the things that make it easier, perhaps, for you to make those kinds of choices to experiment in the way that you've described? Well, you have to have pretty strong red lines. You know, I, you have to have things that you will not do. I remember our first company handbook that we wrote because we had our first ever employee and it was, it was really short. It was one sentence. It was, if you litter, you're fired. And then over time, you're like, well, we've got other red lines. <laughs> <laughs> we've got, um, yeah, we've got other things that mean, that mean a lot to us too. So let's focus on everything. But you have to have things that, you're, that, you, that you find unacceptable and you have to not go in those directions ever. Mm -hmm. So when people talk about having a North Star, don't just have one as an ideal, set it and align all of your activities in the service of it and yeah. things that aren't in the service things that aren't in the service of it weed them out um you don't need them and i'm not saying this is easy if you have a it's it, it was relatively straightforward for us because we weren't in a legacy organization i didn't inherit a business that was doing really really damaging and destructive things and then have to transform it into a business that was doing really wonderful things mm -hmm. but I had to create a business from nothing. Yeah. So, and I, and I think that's just as hard. So when people are like, oh, but it's going to be really hard to turn this, this ship around. I was like, I had no ship. I had no river. I had nothing. I was like, <laughs> Noah, <laughs> I didn't even know how to build a boat. So I don't, so I don't take that. Oh, it's difficult as an excuse. I also think there's an interesting conversation you have to have with shareholders which is, yeah, look at, let's really talk about what the shareholder system is. At some point, maybe, you, I mean, if you, if you were an early investor in Bell Labs, you might still be getting dividends from Bell. Mm. Like a hundred years later. So your great grandparents parked some cash somewhere and you're still benefiting from it. Come on. I think that's crazy. I think it's crazy to demand ever increasing dividends when you yourself know where those dividends are coming from. Do you really want that money? And I've had this conversation with um, oh, lots of people from different generations. And I'm like, would you be willing to take less of a pension? Would you be willing to, you know, and, and there's a lot of people who simply the answer for is no, because they couldn't afford to survive on any less. But But at the same time, if our survival depends on the exploitation and degradation of a habitat or someone else somewhere else, then then someone else's survival is at stake. Mm -hmm. You know, I get really upset when people are like, oh, you know, these people are gluing themselves to the M25. And so and I was late for a funeral and I'm like, yeah, but how many people wow. died this summer? Because it was 42 degrees two days in a row mm -hmm. in the shade. How many people died in Pakistan in the floods? We are not making, we are, we're not comparing like for like in these, in these situations. So the conversation you have to have about your business structure is definitely with your shareholders. And you have to say, look guys, this business has to change, has to, has to absolutely change. And if, if you're gonna let us change the business and stick with us on that journey, great. And if you're not, we're leaving. Mm 
so so you have to have you have to have a, a you know if you're managing a, a business that those those that's how direct you have to be with your shareholders and it's not like management hasn't made decisions that shareholders haven't liked in the past you know there's been this whole rise in executive pay for no real gain in productivity and that's gone through mm. so let's so let's make some genuine productivity gains have you had to have those kinds of conversations with investors at Elvis and Cressy before? We don't have investors. Okay. We have, we have, we have Elvis and Cressy. So this is another, so we have, we have some ridiculous privileges. Like I only have to justify myself to Elvis and he only has to justify himself to me. And we don't really do any of that because we, you know, love and trust each other. So that's <laughs> not a problem. We share the same values. We know yeah. we have very, very strong red lines again, which we share. Mm-hmm. And when we decide to do stuff, we go, we go all in and we go for it. Mm. So we don't, you know, and, and, and if, and, and it, I mean, come on. And it's not like that, that, that hasn't resulted in like difficult financial decisions for us over time. We could have earned a lot more money if money meant success to us. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. We could be empty shells of broken people by now, but we're not. So those are the decisions. You have to have a discussion with your shareholders, have to get them on board. You have to get them to take a a pay cut. Mm. And given the fact that they're just parking their money with you, then I think they should be fine, provided you're building something that's genuinely resilient, sustainable. If they take a long-term view, if they really are genuine shareholders, which to me, a genuine shareholder is one that does take a long-term view. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking three to four years here. I'm talking seven to 10 to 25 to 50 years. Then those are the shareholders you should keep. And yeah. those are the shareholders that that will understand the changes you're making. You know, we have a we don't have shareholders, we have stakeholders. So we do open book accounting with our charity partners and with the organizations that we work with. So it's not like it's not like we're not accountable to anyone. When I just say I'm giving 50% of my profits to charity, I want people to trust that that's really happening. And yep. the best way to do that is to have these open, transparent relationships with our stakeholders. So we do have this crew of people who are like, oh, those like, so so you guys bought like you guys bought a laser this year. And then we're like, yeah, we bought a laser and it's incredible because it paid itself back within X months. And this is why we did it. We, you know, in the early years, they were like, you guys at some point have to pay yourselves a little bit more. You're going to, or like, or you're not ever going to have a pension. You know, you're not ever going to have a safety net yourselves and you're going to run out of steam and then the whole business is going to collapse. And that was really amazing conversation to have with our biggest beneficiary saying, give us less so that you guys can keep going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're all on board with the fact that we're a living wage employer and we're not just a living wage employer for our, um, you know, staff we've had for five years. If you start here as an apprentice, you're paid a living wage because you're alive. <laughs> you have to live. Fashion needs to be more expensive. Food needs to be more expensive. Mm-hmm. Food, apparently I was reading, we've all, well, we've all read and reread English pastoral now, um, but food used to cost a huge percentage of our of our take home pay, and it costs significantly less. Hours. And 
that's all at the expense of farmers, farmland, and livestock and habitats. Yeah. You know, so you've got cheap food at the cost of no food for future generations. Yeah. At the cost of destroying the ecosystem around the Mississippi River and everything that flows from it. You know, the rivers in South China are anoxic. Like life cannot exist. And we've done that because we wanted to make food cheap and readily available. Why? We've, we've made it cheap and readily available and we've taken people out of the rural economy so that they could go and live in cities and not understand where food came from and want to buy stuff they don't need instead of things that nourish them. Yeah. We've got a really great structure at the minute, don't we? The system's really working for us all. <laughs> um, I, there's, I feel like there's so much wisdom in what you've just covered and huge territory. I wanted just to circle back to one piece, particularly around the kind of investor shareholder piece um, before coming to a final question. I, the thing I wanted to circle back to was I think a really crucial point, because one thing that I talk about a lot with clients is around you know the different elements of what it might mean to be a more regenerative organization. And one of those crucial elements is how you're funded. And people are often like, oh, well, you know, is it more regenerative to be a, um, a private organization than a, a publicly listed one? Is it more regenerative to be um, owned by a family or to be a cooperative? What's the more regenerative model? And my answer is that there isn't a model that is more or less regenerative. The crucial piece is, do you have shared values with those people? So if you are a shareholder-owned organization, as you say, do those shareholders share the same regenerative values as you? Mm. Or is there a fixation on or a, or a legal requirement for short-term profit maximization as the main value? Which there is. I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that's, our, that's the problem with our current shareholder system is that legally, directors have fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder gain. Exactly. That's their legal. And Elvis and I have rewritten the constitution of the business to say, that the planet and its people are more important than profit. And that is just like an amazing thing for people to take away as, an, as something that they you can do, you know, even if you are a shareholder-owned organization, there are things you can build into your agreements to- Cost 15 so, pounds. <laughs> oh. Cost, it costs 15 pounds to change your M&A with company's house. Boom. Well, I would hope that most organizations could spring for that. <laughs> Any, any FTSE, this is my offer, any FTSE 100 company, I'll pay that for you. I'll pay. <laughs> <laughs> not, and not, not Elvis and Cressy. I will pay. Personally. Amazing. I will pay. <laughs> what an offer. So I think to round off, what I'd love to, to ask you is, you know, I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that what you're doing is, you know, not the norm, that the, the way in which you're operating and the way in which you're choosing to orientate your organization is for the moment not the way most organizations work and I'm sure that that involved challenges difficulties obstacles because you're trying to do that within a system legally economically politically that is largely not aligned to those same values I would love to know what how you manage that tell us about some of the challenges and how you've managed that but also maybe with you know people in mind who might be finding themselves within a an organization and trying to shift that ship um, or might be trying to set something up 
uh, of their own within these systems, which feel like, oh, they're making this so difficult. It's making it so difficult for me to do this in a way that feels supportive of our greater thriving. What, how have you dealt with the challenges of, of kind of going against the grain? I guess I've just never seen it that way. You know, the people say, oh, it's, it's... okay. Elvis and Presley is a social enterprise. And people are like, oh my gosh, that's so hard because you're a bit, you have to do all the things that a business does, but you also are in the service of the community and you're accountable to that community and you're solving a social or environmental problem. And often these are very, very serious problems. And, and you've got this mission that is more important than anything else. And you're like, oh, so it's like, you've got two jobs, right? It's twice as hard. And I was like, I've never felt that ever. I don't feel like it's twice as hard. I feel like it would be impossible to work any other way. If I was setting up a company and I was like, yeah, this is going to be some great business. I'm going to set up a crypto business and it totally is a Ponzi scheme. And I know loads of people are going to be wiped out by it. That I would find emotionally crippling and I probably wouldn't be able to either sleep and, and it would be impossible. That would be too much work for me. Overcoming everything in my value system, everything I've ever been taught to do, and anything that, and any you know metaphysical conversation I could ever have with my dead grandmother, mm. I, 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 could, I couldn't do that. That would be impossible. I think it's harder. So when people say, oh, if this must be so hard, I'm like, no, I think what you're doing is harder. Because you have to park your humanity at the door and I and I don't know how to do that I don't know how to, uns I don't know how to unzip half of my soul and leave it outside so it's an honor and a joy to work in this way and maybe that's about reframing it for people um but I, re I remember uh, Sasha Romanovich who's like an amazing leader for Grant Thornton for a few years and is doing incredible things in the world of fair finance and financial inclusion and she said you have to show up as yourself because everyone else is taken and I, love that. <laughs> I, was like, I was like why do we go into these systems thinking we have to become a part of the system go into the system and be yourself and that's how the system changes because then the system is about the 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 sum total of all the humanity that's there instead of instead of the lowest common denominator that we box that we push ourselves into and have to feel like we fit in amazing what an incredible invitation and reminder that the systems that we're trying to change are just made up of individual people making individual choices and individual moments so actually this job which can feel so huge can also be lots and lots of small things shifting mm. showing up differently ourselves is as crucial as these kind of big, 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 big choices and big changes. Yeah, absolutely. Cressy, I mean, I feel like I need to thank you and Dolly for being here today. <laughs> and um, because it seems like that voice and your grandma, I um mm. she sounds like an absolutely phenomenal woman just from what the how she's kind of shown up in the shadows today. And yeah, I'm really grateful to you, all three of you, um, and to Elvis for the amazing work that you've done. I want to use this podcast not only to kind of share the wisdom that you and others have gathered as you've 
been working to cut um, a new path, but also to celebrate you because I think it's it's important that we acknowledge the kind of sometimes the courage and bravery, though, I think, as you've said, for you, it's just felt like the natural only way that you could ever have gone. But I think mm. it's still important to celebrate you for making use of that, those values, for responding to them, for responding to what they wanted you to do and, um, and charting this path so that it's easier for others to follow. So thank you. I don't know. I think I had, I think I had a, I think I had a yellow brick road that was paved by lots of wonderful people. <laughs> no other way. It was, quite, it was quite easy for me to follow the, the yellow brick road. Well, may many others be, uh, be following you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Oh, for me, this was a really important conversation. I think what Cressy beautifully reminded us of is the simplicity of this, really. What it means to be regenerative and how we go about embedding that in our organisations. There's a lot of complexity and nuance to it in some ways. But ultimately, it's simple. It's about choices. Either we choose to put the thriving of life at the centre of what we're doing, or we don't. When we were children, what was right or wrong felt simple and instinctive. We need to get back to that simplicity. Remember what true success looks like. Remember what's really valuable to us. Generate the confidence and resilience to remain unwaveringly rooted in those values. And revel in the freedom, creativity, joy, peace that comes from that rootedness. I am taking so many quotes from what Cressy had to offer, but one has already made it to a post-it note on my desk. Just because the system is broken doesn't mean we have to be. So let's go into the system and be joyful and free and determined. Let's behave as if our grandmothers and children were watching. Because that is how the system changes. Changes.